Hello, my name is Tina Camellia and this is The Starting Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation, data and democracy. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that the transcript and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, supplement to every edition of The Starting Block. Now, in the next lane, science communicator Tan Su Lin on the evolution of science journalism in Malaysia. Ready? Let's go. Okay, cool. Let's start with an introduction to your career. Obviously, you've been in this field for a decade at least, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but how did you get to where you are now? Let's start also with like your academic pathway. I've been 11 years in the media industry, more so in broadcast journalism. So after I graduated from UPM in chemistry, actually, so... I landed my first job as a radio broadcast journalist with a national news agency. So that's where they first started their radio station and they were looking for journalists. And when I left university, I told myself I had no chemistry with chemistry. I'm not going to do anything to do it. And also I had some experience in university where I was a student DJ. So communications was my passion from the get-go. Uh, although I was studying something else. So I followed that path and I applied for the job and I got it. Uh, and then after three years, I felt I wanted to pursue a bigger audience, uh, you know, more challenge television perhaps. Um, and then that's where I got uh, into a, a TV station. Uh, it's a 24 hours news channel uh, based in Malaysia, Ashrawani. So I spent about eight years actually in Awani. I started out uh, as a broadcast journalist and I did a lot of, uh, you know, local stories, general news desk, and it's in BM, Basa, Malaysia, because it's a, it's a TV, news TV station uh, in, in Malay medium. So I do a lot of like a feature story, you would say, uh, on environmental news and a bit of science, because I guess somehow when you're a science student, you kind of can't really run away from that. Environmental, mostly because it was my passion, right? And where else science is because I think I like challenge. Uh, I remember my first assignment when I got to the, the TV station and there was this hot topic where the, uh, the country was deciding whether or not to uh, come up with a nuclear power plan. And then it was just my first week at work and one of the producers said, can you do this piece? Uh, can we put you on the, on the, in front of the camera and you do your analysis for <laughs> that five minutes? It was for a talk show. And I was like, wow, you trust me? <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that the producers, uh, what you were saying that if we don't trust you, we wouldn't hire you. So I was like, okay, so I took it on the challenge. It wasn't so alien because... Well, as a science student, you kind of understand the, 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 the basics of how nuclear, you know, the power of fusion and fusion and stuff like that. So it was okay. And I, I took it and, and I had a lot of fun with it, actually. So that was where I guess it all started uh, because after eight years and my last role was a TV news producer and also an editor, um, I left to further my studies uh, in the UK where I got a Shivening scholarship. Uh, and I left to study in 2018. I did my master's in environment, culture, and society. And I thought to myself, uh, while I was there, what else can I do with the knowledge and background that I have? Um, so while I was furthering my studies there, also I did a lot of thinking. 
And when I came back is exactly when the COVID-19 pandemic started. Uh, imagine coming back, you, you think to yourself like, oh my God, I'm going to so high and do a lot of things. And then bam, pandemic happens like, and you're grounded, like literally grounded. You can't even do anything. But what I realized, obviously also because of my background as a journalist, I realized back then uh, at the start of pandemic, I still remember it was in sometime around March, I came back in January 2020 and then that, in January it was still in China. So in March is where it all started to hit everywhere um, globally. Uh, and then I, I, I realized uh, in terms of the news coverage in, in Malaysia, uh, especially is very one way because it was mostly just reporting on the, the authorities, what the authority would say, what the minister would say. And, and I, I thought to myself, you're talking about science essentially, you know, you're talking about virus and, and there's a lot of science behind it, but where's the science? Who's explaining the science? And I knew then media played a huge role, you know, um, I always believe as a, as a journalist as well that, you know, you have this idealistic journalists are agents of change that, you know, you can, you bring change to the, the society, the community. And I felt like I, I always knew that media played a huge, huge role. And I can imagine how uh, hectic and, and havoc the newsroom would be, especially in times of pandemic, and also with the restriction of uh, being locked down and working from home. And also exactly the gap that I was talking about, there was the lack of that science, scientific discourse, and also in, in layman term. And then that's where I got to, to thinking that, you know, there must be something that we can do. Uh, so uh, during the pandemic in March, uh, someone connected me to a science communicator in Malaysia. By the way, there's not many. So if you say science communicator, you can, there's has a handful. Uh, and they connected me to uh, Dr. Mahalachumi, uh, who is now my co-partner in the Science Media Center. Uh, so Science Media Center is something that uh, I co-founded with Dr. Maha uh, during the pandemic to kind of like give support to journalists in uh, evidence based reporting uh, and also because I see how myself and Dr. Maha come together is my years in media and, and communication uh, as a journalist in terms of the, the media network and also some scientists because I have had covered uh, stories on science so I still have some network with scientists and I know where she comes from with her background in you know, microbiology, uh, biotechnology, and also uh, science communication, and also her network of scientists. So there's these two pools, the media and the scientists. So that's what we thought that, hey, you know, we complement each other. Why don't we just work together? And we just got to talk. And then I just did tell her that uh, my experience as well, when I was in the UK, I attended, uh, you know, science communication workshops and, and conferences. And I felt like there's something missing in Malaysia, you know, it's something that you can, we can emulate in, in Malaysia. Mm. So we also contacted them and they're happy that we are also opening a science media center in Malaysia. There's, there's a reason why I wanted you to talk about your academic pathway, how you started academically, because I think a lot of people would assume that to be a journalist, you need to go to journalism school, get a journalism degree or a comms degree. And, and I mean, there are many pathways to becoming a journalist, especially where, where you are a subject matter-based journalist, not a general news desk. You could come from uh, different ways to get to that uh, career as well. But with science journalism, I think 
with that, um, there's a little bit more of a technical know-how in that subject. And I think coming from a science background is also um, could be value add to the science desk. Um, and speaking of science desk, I'm, I'm really wondering about how it was like when you started your career, say a decade ago, what uh, the newsroom looked like and the makeup of the newsroom, whether they were designated science journalists or is that something that you just get parachuted in um, when there's a big science news like a like a pandemic i mean even before the covid 19 pandemic there was ebola there was zika there was sars um, that, that's just the health related stuff but also major news in for instance environment or, or climate change like the cop 21 for instance when those major events happen then you get parachuted in or has has there always been dedicated designated um, science desks or health desks or environmental desks in, in newsrooms in Malaysia in general? What do you think? Based on my observation and my own experience, the short answer is no, or it's just a handful. In my experience, there are no designated uh, desks. It's just general desks and people just naturally fall into whatever they are passionate about because, you know, because uh, sometimes reporters, you pitch your own stories, right? Yeah. So usually it's tend to be more of what kind of stories are you interested in? So you tend to pitch for that story. So that falls naturally for me because I'm following the stories that I wanted to do. And back then, I, I was more keen on like marine conservation story because I love diving. And I was the only reporter in the newsroom that could dive and nobody could, will, you know, fight me my diving uh, trip or, you know, coverage to go to the island or whatever. But I use it to my advantage. <laughs> in terms of uh, science desk, per se, no. Um, health desk also probably no, but maybe reporters who are more prone to covering health stories, they are. Mm -hmm. But as I said, only a handful. Uh, and they are usually, uh, you know, the same people. That's the only way to kind of like be specialized. You take a long time to build a network. Uh, even for science reporting in general, it would be probably the, the, the tech desk, you know, reviewing phones or gadgets. But in terms of addressing the, the, the foundation of science mm. and stuff like that, no, close to none. Well, health is the most relatable one because it affects all of us, right? Mm. So uh, there's an interest in it. But if you're talking about, for example, if environmental topics, it's quite hard because people don't see it as a sexy story. If it doesn't affect them, you know, why should they care? So if you're talking about deforestation or whatever, it could happen in a different state, but, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm fine. It doesn't affect me. I, I don't care. Unless it happens at your backyard. It's still a challenge right now. How do you sexify an environmental story? It, mm. it's, it's very hard. I, I still don't have the answer to it. Yeah, th there's a good point about when you brought up how um, when there's science journalism, it's usually the tech guys reviewing uh, tech gadgets. Because I think that when we when we look at science stories, we try to find something that's directly related to our day-to-day -day activities or day-to-day -day life. So health stories or tech stories that's covered in the mainstream um, spaces, it's usually something that's, I don't want to call it fluff because it is important to, to review tech gadgets so we know what's best for uh, what kind of user, but also it doesn't go to the foundation of the science. So, so then you become heavily reliant on these reviewers to tell you without being able to 
decide for yourself sometimes. So that's why I think maybe with health science coverage, um, because we don't have the history of having um, fundamental health science being discussed in the news, we become very like this whole pandemic is throwing everyone into chaos, not knowing what how to read a science article. So, so on that note, I was wondering as a journalist who's, who's covered science for so many years and being one of the few to consistently do it. I mean, I remember as a kid waiting for the end of the evening news to watch Karam Singh Walia and his two minutes of um, environmental reporting, right? I wanted to know what's the latest in Malaysia because it's easy for us to find science news from the US, from the UK, from Australia, but what is happening here in our own country? So what are the challenges and opportunities you see? So the challenges when you were doing that on a daily basis and now the opportunities that you're creating through um, the Science Media Center? Most, uh, not all, but most, you know, uh, journalists background would probably be non-science, right? Mm -hmm. Either you study journalism, mass communication, or even law or whatever, right? Which is why we started the Science Media Center is because journalists are just not equipped to covering, you know, uh, science topic uh, in terms of the technicalities and, you know, breaking down the complexity of a certain topic, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, most journalists, they are just thrown at it. If you don't know something well enough, how are you capable of reporting it and mm. the job as a journalist is double hard because you are essentially taking something that is so complex and you have to understand it first mm -hmm. before writing it in the manner that so you are the explainer you have to explain it to another person your your mm. reader so that they can understand but to do that you have to understand that and that I would say is not an easy feat to understand something that is so complex even uh, scientists themselves also yeah. find it hard to explain a research that they have done and they've do, they're doing this research for like every day of their lives like you know you think that they can you know, explain their research well but you know they also sometimes you know having difficulty in explaining them so I guess it's because they're not equipped one thing uh, with the, the know-how for example and also mm -hmm. partly the lack of interest in general for example in Malaysia the awareness for science related topic uh, especially environmental topic I'm taking environmental topic as an example because this is what I was doing back then, uh, is that it's a very general, generally low interest in these topics, right? Back then, maybe a bit more now, but still very low uh, mm -hmm. as a whole. So when you talk about general public, this also includes editors and journalists as well. So in general, the, the awareness and the interest is already so low. And how do you get someone, a journalist who is a, a lay person to be interested in topics like this? Um, that is also a challenge uh, as well. And then maybe we can start talking about, you know, how do you get them interested enough to, for example, enroll themselves in courses? And now there's so many online courses, right? Even if you don't have courses that are provided within Malaysia, there's so many out courses out there internationally that talks about science journalism, environmental journalism, tech journalism, uh, even recently there's uh, courses about vaccine awareness. Really, there's no excuse, I would say, but at the same time, the challenge is in, in terms of manpower, the media industry is actually struggling. You can see clearly now the focus is a lot on COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, opportunities, well, 
Uh, now more than, more than ever, uh, there's more talks about viruses and vaccines and science, outing science, right? So I would say probably this could be a beginning for people to realize science is very important because it does affect our everyday lives, um, you know, your health or even a lot of people are not seeing it at the moment, but they talk about COVID-19 um, and the vaccine and whatnot, but we often forget as well to address the issue of climate change. That actually is something that will happen, uh, you know, adverse uh, effect of climate change. If you don't do something about it, that mm. could probably be even more worse than, than what we are facing right now. And speaking of communicating the science, I mean, there's there's a way that scientists communicate with each other about the sciences that they do. There's a way that they communicate to, say, someone who they know is a science journalist. But there's also an element of actual language barrier, I think, especially with science stories. And a lot of the research in science or in the science that should matter to the general public. So like the science around COVID-19, um, which we all had to find out at the same time when, when I mean, it was a, it's a novel virus. So whenever scientists are making discovery about it, they're publishing it, we all know about it at the same time. And they're probably publishing it in English and not just in general English, but in scientific English, which is a different kind of English too you know, the English that we speak in our day-to-day. And then there's that additional barrier of then, how do you communicate this scientific English to vernacular Malay, vernacular Chinese, or vernacular mm-hmm. Tamil for, for our population that's so multilingual and so diverse in our language mastery as well? How do you do that? especially for such a fast-paced stories because when when you leave too much time you create a void and then you have to deal with all the misinformation that fills that void yeah you're right uh it's not just about uh english or bahasa or uh mandarin it's even in in english itself is it's just a different uh you call it science language and there's difference in terms of your day-to-day language that's why with the Science Media Center as well, we want to kind of address this uh, by having more capacity building kind of training. And, you know, for journalists, how can they improve in terms of their writing, in terms of uh, finding, you know, uh, credible scientists to interview uh, and stuff like that. That's kind of like the gap you see that it's, it's, it is a mismatch mm. at the moment. So I don't have the answer, to be honest, because we are also figuring out yeah. As we speak, uh, I'm not sure if you noticed that even before COVID-19, there's science communication is almost non-existent, right? Mm. How, how, how much science do you see out there in mainstream? Do you, do you even remember? Mm. So I would say now would be the time where you see more and more scientists are stepping out mm. and trying to explain to people, even through their social media or whatever. Mm. So you can see that the attempts are there. As compared to prior before this, it's it's almost you don't even see that, uh, and you see mostly all happening in the lab and all that. So I would think that now there's you can see a slow, uh, slowly evolving from there, mm-hmm. and also I think scientists also realize the importance of of science communication. And when we talk about science communication, um, it's actually relatively very new. Mm-hmm. Even in the UK, it's only about twenty years old, and even right then. 
I still remember one of the major uh, science communication conferences that I attended, they were still struggling in terms of communicating science, even though they have like 20 years ahead start before us. And when I, I asked one of the panelists before this, if you could redo everything, right, to make it right, how would you do it differently? They don't have the answer either because right. everyone is figuring it out because it is very, very, it's, science communication is still very, very new. Um, if the UK has 20 years, I would say the Malaysia is probably very, uh, you know, we're taking baby steps, but I'm glad to say that we are starting from somewhere and we are collaborating with other uh, science agencies as well. I also noticed that even from themselves, the other uh, science-related agencies in, in Malaysia, um, they are also doing their part. Mm. We might not uh-huh. see it because, you know, people are, are working in pockets, to be honest, because it's such a small community. Uh, the reason why Science Media Center kind of like gets to join the big boys is because it's a small community. Trust me, uh, people who are doing science communication is just as well a handful. And we are trying. So there's kind of like no right or wrong. We're still figuring our way. Uh, but I do agree that, you know, it has to be, because in Malaysia is also the context of multicultural, multilingual, it has to be translated into those languages as well. Not just Chinese, Malay, India, but also um, different ethnic languages like, you know, uh, Kadazan, Iban, or Bidayo. But at the same time, we are talking about the lack of resources. And even Science Media Center, we are uh, non-profit. We work on a voluntary basis. We don't get paid, you know? So all of us are doing this based on our passion. There's a lot more that can be done. And, and I'm excited because we are exploring different things um, with other uh, partners and other uh, organizations who are in the science communication. I've been uh, looking at your digital media toolkit that was just released yes. on, on covering um, environmental stories and, and climate stories panas right do you want to yes, talk a little yes. bit about that it's pretty comprehensive for the malaysian public mm-hmm. and also especially those who are covering stories around uh, that yeah. subject it's also um, drawing from my experience as a journalist being in a newsroom wanting to cover environmental stories or climate change stories you know where do I start? I, I don't even know. You know, there's, there's no one telling. Uh, and, and if you're expecting these stories from editors, it won't come from them, trust me. <laughs> it's probably the least of their priority. Um, so it, it has to come from you. If a senior journalist, you really have a basic background and you kind of know where to get your sources. But for a new journalist, I can imagine someone being like quite lost, not, mm-hmm. not knowing where to start. And that's how the whole idea where Panas uh, Digital Media Toolkit uh, came about. Um, as mentioned before, with the whole background scenario I talked to you about, the science communication gap, and especially in this case, the environmental communication gap, you only mentioned Karam Singh Walia, right? The growing up, you only knew probably that, that one environmental journalist. <laughs> I mean, he's made, he's, he makes a mark because of the, his delivery with his pantun yeah. and his saja and his peribahasa, you know, that's so eye-catching. Yeah. But that's unique to him. We can't all be doing the same thing because then otherwise it loses its appeal as well, no? True, true. So the whole idea behind that is, is um, the digital uh, toolkit is, is a part of the project where we wanted to put out more environmental and climate change news out there. So apart from the project, we had a pitching contest in various languages. So we've got nine stories in four languages. English, Malay, Mandarin, and Tamil for a start, yeah. right? 
um, we also had a workshop, a media workshop uh, as part of the Panas project because as well, as we mentioned, the lack of uh, resources and the lack of reporters who aren't equipped in covering environmental topics or climate change topics. So this workshop, we gathered uh, experts uh, in environment and also uh, science reporters to kind of like hold their hands. How do you write environmental topics and what are the major issue, issues out there and stuff like that. And we break it down to them, uh, even like reports that IPCC, what is IPCC? And you know, uh, why, why is it so important to know about all this kind of stuff and like some other different policies. And the finale was the digital toolkit. The digital kit basically is a one-stop center. I would say that it's a Bible, but it's over-exaggerating. Um, <laughs> for all journalists, who are new to environmental and climate change reporting. So in there, there's like context of what climate change is about and not just climate change, but climate change in Malaysia mm-hmm. and also the environmental uh, activism and movement in Malaysia. In there also, there's a list of experts and spokespersons and even like lists of policies. Uh, and also when we talk about, you know, technicalities and jargons, there's also a glossary. There's also some tips there, you know, it's not just all about deforestation. There's mm-hmm. so many other aspects maybe in fashion or uh, stuff like that, that are also actually related Absolutely. to climate change. Uh, so it just gets people to think, you know, to kind of like open up um, their minds a bit when it comes to uh, climate change. And of course, it's it will be updated uh, from time to time. So all these kind of things are ever evolving, right? Yeah, I think it's a great start because one thing about climate stories and environmental stories that I consume is that it's coming a lot from outside of Malaysia. Right. And I think... Even when it's covered by Malaysians, when it's written by Malaysians, whether or not they're um, specifically science journalists or they're just um, a general news publication, it's always news from outside. And I think right. like this is where you can get people yeah. to find local uh, experts who can contextualize it for the Malaysian public. And that's really, really what what's one, one of the biggest things that's missing um, in the news coverage? Uh, we also got pretty good feedback. I think more interestingly, we gathered that a lot of people are excited about it because there's the, so there's the English version and also there's a BM translation. So the BM version of the toolkit is the one uh, a lot of people are kind of excited because it's so hard to get information, uh, information about climate change or environmental topic in Malaysia mm. and in, in Basamayu. Yes. So, and also we got some uh, good feedback that says it should be translated in Mandarin and Tamil. Mm. Hopefully we get more funds and we can <laughs> hire people to translate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've covered health news significantly. Like a lot of my last few years before I left full-time journalism was in health journalism. And I feel like doing it in English is is not as exciting as doing it in Malay because the gap in the coverage is so wide. The English health journalism that's done in Malaysia is way beyond talks about cancer cures and turmeric magic pill and so on. Whereas in the Malay language uh, media, that's still the conversation, you know, curing gout with some salt water spray and, you know, that kind of stuff that we've already, we're past that. We've dealt with that. And now, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I feel like that can be extrapolated to all sorts of science uh, journalism in Malaysia. And I feel language wise, I would go further to say that 
I, I truly love the idea of reporting it in Malay because uh, coming from a Malay medium background, it does address the larger mass mm. because we are in our population, more people actually do speak Malay. And I've been to kampongs and all that. And uh, I feel truly honored and touched where kind of opened my eyes. Like the most interior rural area that I've been was in Long Busang in Sarawak. It takes nine hours to get there on a wooden boat, a long boat, you know. Also, we have to we have to go through, you know, the rocks and the rivers. It was really scary, but we made there <laughs> alive nine hours. And the moment I, I reached there, the local uh, were there waiting for me. And one of them came up to me and they said, Hey, um, Tan Sulin Ashrawani, can I take a picture? Uh, in Malay, obviously. So I was like, wow. I'm not saying that these people know me, but then also these people know me. Then I felt like my stories, they are watching my news and my story. And also whatever information you put there, they are consuming it. And then it got me to think also, if you're talking about language barrier here, right? And if you want to go through the Kampong folks or even the, the larger population, it has to be Bahasa Malaysia. In Malaysia, well, obviously, that's the challenge as well to have these stories out there more stories like this well not so much focus in english stories but now that we're in a lockdown and we're sort of confined in our own um, tiny little spaces um like you were saying earlier there there's an uptick of um, scientists and science experts who are taking to social media to communicate directly to the masses about the science, right? Do you think that uh, further down the line, there's going to be maybe some challenges that you would have to address, the Science Media Centre would have to address, especially in terms of etiquette or ethics? I'm sure, like, for instance, if you're a doctor talking about the vaccination or about COVID-19 in general, there's a code of conduct for healthcare professionals, right? About the ethics of uh, doctor-patient confidentiality and so on. But at some point further down the line with science communication, particularly because in, in Malaysia, we don't really have the guidelines or the standards to how to communicate on social media for issues that can that can breach ethical lines. Is this something that Science Media Centre is looking into, is working on? Obviously, when it comes to uh, using social media as a tool, it's still very much up to individuals. Mm. There's no way you can really control that. So what we can, what kind of information that we can uh, impart them with, um, say, if uh, uh, scientists consult Science Media Center, for example, how to go about. Obviously, we will, as best as we can, kind of like advise them how to do it. Uh, but I guess there's no one quick solution to go about it. There's, but I'm hoping we get to that stage so that it means that there's enough people out there communicating that we <laughs> we have that problem. Then you have probably a lot more information. Then I guess it's also up to the netizen to have their own discernment how what kind of information should they take how do you tell the the difference between fake news for example right it works both ways yeah that would be another problem which <laughs> we would face in the future but you know i hope it gets there then it means that we have a lot of information about yeah. science yeah and so um just to wrap things up maybe you can leave us with some of your thoughts on how Policymakers, scientists, and experts can work together with journalists and with the media to improve science communication online and 
offline, like through traditional media as well. Journalists plays a major role in terms of um, education and, and advocacy, right? For example, topics of science and also about the environment. So for policymakers to make informed decisions, what are they consuming? What, where are they consuming this information, right? So media itself plays that kind of role to highlight issues that are out there and the sciences to have environmental because mm. when you talk about policymakers they are also representing the general public right mm. they are also consuming news like you and I so the way I see it if there's enough information out there or if there's enough stress on the importance of, of environment or on, on science hopefully then the policymakers and the politicians and the government or whatnot will, will realize that this is what the people want. This is what the riot wants, you know, more emphasis on environment and on health or, or science. And also it works both ways as well for the policymakers and government to kind of create that ecosystem where people are able or journalists are able to you know, report more about environmental, be more readily with, you know, facts and figures, you know, with, uh, assist journalists in terms of reporting by, by giving the information, the relevant information and, and stuff like that. Because essentially at the end of the day, we are working together, you know, to kind of like push the importance of, of environment or, or science or communication mm-hmm. forward. What we're doing is, is helping the general public make informed decisions, right? And I strongly believe media plays a huge role, a huge, huge role. Right now, for example, environmental is more reactive role. You know, anything happens and they react to it, the reaction starts and all that. But can you imagine if the media and journalists are being empowered? They themselves come up with stories of policy, environmental policy, uh, bringing the, the, the highlighting the topics of COP26, you know, or, or why is it so important that we understand all these uh, important policies? Can you imagine what kind of information that the general public would would consume and what makes the general public open their eyes as well? Like, oh, wow, we are part of this global climate movement, for example. We're not there yet, (laughs) but (laughs) um, it's a start. Yeah. Mm. Really? So there's a lot to look forward to in terms of science journalism and science communication in Malaysia. I'm really excited. I think the Science Media Centre was established at the right time. It's a perfect time for it to come to life and producing Yakini vaccine that was produced about vaccine that's beyond a Wikipedia page that's available in Malay for the masses. That's so important. Thank you. Yakini vaccine is an ongoing topic and Mm. it's particularly addressing contents in Bahasa just Mm. for the fact that I've mentioned earlier that we are addressing the the masses and Mm. most people are speaking in Bahasa. Bahasa. Yeah, absolutely. And that's Tan Lin, Science Communicator Co-Founder of the Science Media Centre of Malaysia and also Communication Officer at WWF Malaysia. If you'd like to join me on the starting blog for conversations like this, get in touch at tinacamila.substack.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. Till the next one, goodbye for now. <laughs>